0: I was listening to um, some of the podcasts from recent weeks and uh, just playing the beginning of each one of them as we were uh, archiving them in sort of our file storage system, and I noticed something, and I decided to change it up today. I noticed that I begin every single message with, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me, Uh, every single time it was difficult to tell the difference between podcasts because I even say it in the same inflection. All right, uh, creature of habit, I guess, but it's true. I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me. Now, here's the fun part. Uh, as I was standing over there thinking about what I was going to say when I got up here, I was looking around the room, and you have your Bibles open, and you're paying attention to the Word. That's why we say it every week. I hope that even in the preaching of the Word, in the way that we go about the handling of God's word inspired by God's Holy Spirit that we would give you cause to keep your Bibles open that we would keep bent over this word this morning pay attention to what we find there particularly this morning I'm very excited we are beginning a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark Uh, this sermon series was supposed to begin last week I ended up uh, quarantining making that decision relatively late On Saturday last week, thankfully our family dodged the COVID bullet last week, uh, but uh, we did not end up getting sick. But Matt Helmenthaler stepped in and served me, served you well. So thankful for the word in Psalm 23. Uh, A true comfort to me as I was watching via the live stream last week. But now, one week late, we, along with um, Crosspoint Coast, Cape Canaveral, as well as Cross Point Coast, Palm Bay, are beginning a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. Something I'd like to draw your attention to is we have these sheets that should be on the end of your aisles next to the Connect card. They look similar, but they are different. Uh, a little lighter weight paper and so on. And they have the outline of the sermon series. You'll see that this last week was supposed to be Mark 1-1. We're going to keep rolling and we're just going to do Mark one 1 through 11 this week, and uh, we have it planned through April 4th, and then we'll set out what the next set of scriptures are. The reason why we printed this out for you is we hope that you'll not only be bent over the word here with us, but that you would continue to study with us during the course of the week, not only in community group, but morning after morning, maybe dedicate one of your day's to the reading of the upcoming scripture and reflection upon the previous. We also have the Bible Together journals that are just outside, and we would love it if you would make use of those. I think sort of a next step for our church as we're bent over the word and we're paying attention with our pens and pencils is to to sync up, perhaps, uh, if you don't already have a system of doing so, in using the Bible Together journals, is working our way through the scriptures together. Uh, This morning we are going to begin in Mark by paying attention to a letter that was probably written in AD 65 or so. It was written, likely, there's a lot of likelies in this, but really the the picture comes together quite clearly, Uh, a letter that was written to the church in Rome. The letter would have been received by a church that was driven into hiding. This is not a church in Rome in some great cathedral. This is a church that is literally hiding in catacombs and sewers just following the breaking out of a severe persecution that one could, uh, probably one of the most severe persecutions one could imagine, this persecution under the emperor Nero. Now, go with me there. Imagine for a moment, huddled in underground places, quite literally an underground church, yet boldly singing the songs of our faith and preaching the words of the scriptures and preaching the words of the scriptures in Rome in light of their recent fulfillment in Christ. And then one day, somewhere around AD 65, a new writing Arise. And this new writing calls itself a gospel. And that new writing confirms all that you have been remembering and observing recently about Jesus, who is the Christ. Imagine the joy, imagine the joy of your song on that morning when word comes in the form of a gospel to confirm to you everything that you have so recently come to believe, hiding in catacombs. Imagine, even greater than the joy of your song, the confidence of your faith on that morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that this great jewel of a gift that we have of the Gospel of Mark. Preserved through many centuries. How many in Rome would have destroyed this letter on that day? But You have preserved it for us. You've preserved it through your church and the sacrifice of many to come to us. And today we are not hiding underground. And our songs are are even being broadcast to those who are joining us in homes this morning. And yet we ask, Lord, that you would renew our joy, that you would cause a greater confidence. Perhaps if we were hiding, we would understand the joy of this letter better. I pray that your spirit would work in us this morning this great confidence and joy from your word in the gospel of Mark, Lord. Thank you. We trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we want to begin there. We want to begin there at the beginning, the beginning. That's the beginning of what? How's that work? Because to me, if you perhaps have picked up a Bible for the first time ever, you see the beginning of the gospel and you're like, well, there sure are a lot of words before this for this to be the beginning. And I'm going to take us back to elementary school just a little bit in our understanding of the scriptures to say that the Bible is divided into two major divisions, the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has not spoken by His Spirit through the prophets for 400 years prior to the receipt of this Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us in the Scriptures. And here we have Him speaking again with the coming of John the Baptist, and with the coming of Jesus, and with the coming of the prophets, and the apostles, recording the Scriptures for us. This is why it is the New Testament. It is a new voice of God speaking on the foundation that has been built in the first two-thirds of the Scriptures. There's, this is why there's a strong division between these two testaments of the Scripture. Not that they don't speak with a united voice, but that because of this great gap of 400 years between the speaking of that voice. And... With the introduction of this New Testament, we have the announcement of the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Now that Jesus, the Messiah, that is spoken about in the New Testament, really beginning with the prior gospel, Matthew, that Jesus that is being spoken about is so often spoken of in the Old Testament. He's prophesied that he is coming, and now... The cause for the Spirit speaking again is the coming of Jesus. Now that's the Old and New Testament, two two major divisions. The New Testament, this last third of your scriptures, can be broken up perhaps a few different ways. But the first four books, we call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I would add to them also then, if I was dividing these things up, the book of Acts, as really all four, five of them are particularly historical books about Jesus's performance of the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then by the time you get to Acts, we have the birth of the church by the Holy Spirit in the spread of the news of that gospel. So really all five of those books are all about the spread of the gospel, the performance And the proclamation. The second division of the New Testament are the letters. These are letters that are primarily by Peter, Paul, John, also James and Jude and others. These are the letters of the scriptures. These are the ones that you turn to when you don't have a lot of time to read and you're just getting back into your Bible, so you decide to read something nice and short. Yeah, those are the letters of the Bible. And then we have the Apocalypse. We have Revelation, written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. We have him in all three of these major divisions, the Apostle John writing the Apocalypse, the Revelation, in view of God's Revelation to him about Jesus Christ. Let us be clear, before I say that Revelation is about the end of time, it is about Jesus Christ, who is king forever. This is the divisions. And here we are in the book of Mark, beginning in the Gospels, here at the launch of a New Testament. Who is Mark? Why is this called the Gospel of Mark? Well, all of the Gospels were written by the immediate followers of Jesus, his inner group of disciples, and by their close associates, Of these disciples. According to the testimony of the early church, Mark became a close friend and associate of Peter, who followed so closely Jesus in his earthly ministry. And Mark wrote, with Peter's approval and with his apostolic authority, this testimony that begins with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which makes me ask one more question before we jump into this text any further. What is a gospel? If we're at the beginning of something, what is it that we are at the beginning of? I could answer it three ways. First, with this question. What is gospel? What's the word? Some of you may know the word gospel means good news, good words, a good proclamation. All right? A gospel. So whatever's coming, the mark... Seems to believe that this is the beginning of good news, a good proclamation for the church and Rome and all who would receive it thereafter. Second question, what is a gospel? Well, good news is just a generic term. The word gospel is a, is a relatively common use term that then the, the mark the writer of this gospel, makes it a specific term. He takes the idea of a generic good news and he applies it to the good news of Jesus Christ, a testimony about Jesus's work in history. His work, his his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the promise of his return, all recorded for us. Friends, that's good news, that's a gospel, Mark records for us, an account of the good news, which leads us to ask the third question, what is the gospel? This is an account of the gospel, which again is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So that should instruct us that if this book begins with the words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should ask one primary abiding question over and over again. What does this passage tell me about Jesus? What does this passage tell me about Jesus? Here's the problem with the way that we have so very often read the scriptures. We read the Bible and we ask, how can this help me? And how can this help help me understand my husband, my wife, my family, my work, my place in the world, give me meaning in life? Friends, it answers all those questions only on the other side of the first question. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. Let us be faithful to ask that question first, abidingly above all. And if we ask that question, here is what we will have. We will become a people who receive this good news like the people in Rome and be filled with joy about the Christ. A proclamation of the good news of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God, such that we are emboldened and encourage so that our song is great, with greater hope and joy and our proclamation is with greater clarity and confidence. May we have greater clarity about the good news of Jesus Christ because of our time in this word. Let's continue with verse 1. <laughs> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are four things that we are going to see in this passage. We are going to see, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ. We've already spoken about the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've spoken about Jesus, who is the Christ, as he is fulfilling the word of the Old Testament. The word Christ is a Greek word, and it is a Greek word that also means the same as the Hebrew word, which is the way that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which means the anointed one. The Hebrew word is Messiah. Christ, Greek word. What we're speaking about when we speak of Jesus, who is the Christ, we are speaking of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed one. What is an anointed one? Thank you for all the clarifications. You've given me three words that I don't understand. Christ, Messiah, and anointed one. An anointed one is one who is commissioned by God for a specific, special task. This is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one commissioned by God for a specific task. And he becomes not only a Messiah, not only a Christ, he becomes the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one with the special task which is the performance of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophet spoke of a particular Messiah who would be one who suffers for the sake of sinners and comes to save them for judgment for their sin. Many people were anointed for many things throughout the Old Testament, but this is the greatest thing one who would suffer for another's sin, one who would restore fellowship with God, though we are due judgment to Jesus, is this Messiah. It's central to the book of Mark. The book of Mark has in its middle Mark chapter 8, and if you go to the end of Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, it says this. Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And after much explanation and clarification. The apostles are sort of hemming and hawing at answering this question. And finally, Peter offers this confession. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are that anointed one about which the prophets spoke. In essence, Mark is transmitting to us Peter's confession about the Christ. There's a summary for you. The book of Mark is the transmission of Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Perhaps we ought to read and explore the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, that we so that we could understand how is Jesus the Christ according to this first third of the book. How could we come to have greater confidence that Jesus is the Christ according to the words that came before him. How is Jesus presented in this gospel as a fulfillment of the Messiah that is presented in the prophets? So if you're reading Mark on one day of the week, perhaps four other days could be the reading of the prophets together to come to understand these things even more. And that's exactly where we're going to begin. We're going to make our way all the way to verse 2 now. You ready? Let's go to verse 2. As... It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. You see, this is exactly where Mark begins in his gospel. The gospel, the good news of this revelation about the Christ isn't a novel religion. It isn't a new faith. It isn't a new Messiah. It isn't an invention. The first words of Mark's Gospel are a previous Scripture. That's so important. We don't... Christianity did not begin at AD 33 or 65 or when some Scriptures were written. Our faith is an old faith with an old Scripture that understands itself in light of itself. Specifically, these are words actually from two prophets, from Malachi and Isaiah, and they are words about the coming of the Messiah. While this is the beginning of the gospel, a specific good news, a specific announcement, it's the continuation of an ancient story. I know you know that. I know you know that but we don't talk about it enough to really remember it in our bones that we belong to an ancient story, an ancient book. Do you feel it this morning when you receive this letter? That this letter slides right in to a faith and its fulfillment in Christ. Isaiah chapter 40 verses 4 through 5. I would encourage you to write that in the margin. Much of this quotation is from Isaiah 40 verses 4 through 5. It's probably in the reference notes if you have a reference Bible as well. It says this. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And every and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth Of the Lord has spoken. This is the the context within which this quotation regarding the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, is a paraphrase of what I just read in Isaiah. The purpose is that of a prophetic messenger whose purpose is the preparation for the way of the arriving of a king visualize it the, the passage speaks of making uneven ground level every mountain and hill low every valley lifted up why why would you do that when a king is coming to down? well so his his wagon or his cart or his vehicle making its way doesn't hit bumps no the purpose is so that he can be seen from every window That he can be seen from every hilltop and every street corner. No valley would shadow him and no mountain would veil him. That all would see the coming of the king. This is the purpose about which Isaiah is speaking. There is one who will come. And his very purpose will be that all could see the coming of the king. He makes this clear in two ways. In Isaiah, by way of an announcement, he is the voice of one crying out, there will be one who comes before the Messiah, before the anointed King and Lord, who had come and he would make an announcement about the coming. And he does this secondly by preparing the people to be able to see the Lord, which makes me ask the question, if the image was that of actually seeing, like with your eyes, the coming of the Lord, you would, you would tear down every hill and you would raise every pothole and valley so that everybody could see him. But this isn't just that you could see him with your eyes, but that you would know him with your soul when he comes. How do you prepare for the coming of an anointed one like Jesus the Messiah? And the answer we see is with the work of John the Baptist. What does he call them to? How do you see the Lord? How do you flatten the hills and raise the valleys? Repentance. Friends, that is how we see the Lord, with humility, with confession, Why do we have a prayer of confession every single Sunday? Let me just be honest. The first reason why is because we need it every single Sunday. Like there's not that Sunday that says, I don't really need this today, you know? But because we want to see. We want to humble ourselves and say, Lord, speak, and we are ready to listen. The King is coming. The Lord is coming, and we must repent that his salvation might not be veiled by our pride, our sin, and our unbelief. This is the purpose of John the Baptist's coming, because he fulfills this scripture that Mark makes sure that he puts right at the beginning of the gospel, so those who receive it won't see John the Baptist as some new guy, but one who comes in fulfillment of all the people that God has sent before him. And so that brings us to verse 4. John appeared. This is great. You're going to love this about Mark, all right? Mark is so clear. He's he's like the the, the one that's the closest to just a comic book retelling, all right? It's just like, boom, pow, immediately, here's stuff appearing. You could just draw a picture of it. I know some of you love drawing during the messages. Draw what you see because it's so clear, isn't it? It's beautiful and compelling and constantly moving, as simple as, you just heard what I said from Isaiah, here's what I'm saying, John appeared, and he's that guy. John appeared, and he was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this is the second thing that we see in this passage, is that Jesus is the spirit baptizer. John the Baptist is the water baptizer. And he's baptizing with a baptism of repentance. But one who comes after him will baptize with the Holy Spirit. It says later in the passage, verse 7, and he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. Evidently, John the Baptist is not the Messiah. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Before we understand what John is saying about Jesus, we have to understand some of the ministry of John himself. So we'll come to Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit in just a moment, but let us understand what John is doing in the wilderness. For the manner of John's ministry, the manner with which he goes about this proclamation in the wilderness, is itself a proclamation and preparation for the greater ministry of Jesus. I'm going to read a couple lengthy quotes. John fulfills Malachi and Isaiah. and What follows is the way in which John fulfilled the text in Isaiah. I'm going to read a quote from Kent Hughes. He says this, John's dress and lifestyle were a protest against the godlessness and self-serving materialism of his day. Who could we not use a John the Baptist today? Good news, we have a letter, and we have him, and he's given to us today as a protest against the self-serving materialism of our day. Are we here to listen? Do Do we receive his message of baptism for repentance? Are we willing to humble ourselves? It amounted to a call to separate oneself from the sinful culture, repent, and live a life focused on God, even his context that is the desert wilderness. John the Baptist went out to the desert, was meant to emphasize this, for it was originally to the wilderness that Israel came out of Egypt, out of the land in which they were enslaved and became a metaphor for in, to be enslaved in sin and idolatry, to be called out from that place into the wilderness where they would meet God in humility before his mountain. The people's coming out to John in the wilderness was a subtle acknowledgement of Israel's history of disobedience and rebellion and a desire to begin again. Repentance is at the heart of John's ministry throughout. The coming out into the wilderness was an act of repentance itself, a coming out from among the ways of the people, even the religious people. A way of coming out to say we are sinners and we're in need of a Messiah who is coming. Kent Hughes continues, what a beautiful, what was beautiful was that John's life and actions bore out what he was. He lived a life of continual repentance and uncompromising devotion to God. And this was his call to the people. What was John calling the people to with his baptism in the wilderness? He was calling them to a life of repentance that he himself had entered into. A life of humility before the king who is coming. And that humility was necessary for them to see him when he was at hand. Justin Sarah said this about John the Baptist. He is here and he is gone. That's it right there. A true nobody telling everybody about the somebody. That's John the Baptist. He shows up at the beginning. He prepared the way and now the king's here and he's ready to get out of the way. It reminds me of what Matt Hardy told me the very first time I ever had breakfast with him again. And let's be clear, when Matt and I spend time together, it always ends with these words, till we eat again. And we've eaten many times together since then. But on that first breakfast with Matt Hardy, I asked him what he wanted in life. Why would he want to be a part of a church plant? And he quoted Nicholas Ludwig, who is also known as the Count of Zizendorf. He wrote, he said, my hope in life is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. You see, my hope is not to be Jesus. Jesus was Jesus. And Jesus performed the perfect work for me that I might be in him and counted righteous like him, forgiven by him and brought to the Father in him. But my hope is to be like John the Baptist, who's really a nobody, making much of the somebody in humility that we together might see him. In the Gospel of John, not written by John the Baptist, but by another, John the Evangelist. In John chapter 5, verses 35 through 36, this is Jesus' testimony about John. He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have, Jesus says, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, Jesus says, The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I thought the Father sent John the Baptist. Oh, he did. But he wasn't the anointed, the Messiah. He was not the performer of the good news that Jesus came to perform. Now, when John the Baptist is going about this call to repentance and this call to baptism, One of the things that it's important for us to recognize as John the Baptist is doing this work that is in preparation to receive the good work that the Father has given to the Son to do, and there is only one Messiah who is the Son of God, and that is Jesus the Christ. As John the Baptist is doing this, he is essentially saying this, even as he's going about this ministry, it is not enough that you be cleansed with water or other rituals. It's not enough for you to go about and participate with me in this ritual of trying to set ourselves apart for for God, trying to humble ourselves before our God and seek forgiveness. It is not enough. It's not enough to repent of sin. John's preaching and baptism was only a preparation for that which was enough. The coming of Jesus and his ministry is salvation itself. One must be baptized By the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit is the one who must be the one who gives life that we cannot give to ourselves by any act of humility or ritual cleansing. We need the Spirit of God to give life. Jesus tells us this explicitly again in John chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Flesh can do flesh things, but the Spirit can do spirit things. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And that's the ministry of Jesus. It sets Jesus apart as the one to which John was pointing, that we would be prepared with humility to receive the real ministry that is the person and work of Jesus Christ and the spirit that he would give to those who believe. Today I believe that there are many who have in essence only received the message and baptism of John. Today, there are many who have humbled themselves. They know something is wrong and just like the people they went out to John and perhaps you have as well. Perhaps you're even here because you know something's wrong and you know that you have like a sin problem you're even perhaps willing to confess that you have a sin problem, but your confession ends with an effort to clean yourself up and save yourself. You don't realize that that baptism and the ministry of John was pointing to something that is sufficient, that must come, that is the message of Jesus Christ. What is needed is that often some fail to continue with the message and the baptism of Jesus, that is, the only, that only God can save. Only the Spirit can give life, and only Jesus can forgive sin. Today, I want to call you to hear and believe that message, this good news about which Mark writes, that you are a sinner in need of cleansing. This is true, just as John said. The only way that you can be forgiven is not by your own effort or even your execution of religious obedience. But the only way that you can be saved is by the grace of God to forgive sin according to the gospel, the good news that is the performance of Jesus Christ in this book. Why do we give attention here? Haven't we already confessed our sins together? We continue with the preaching of the gospel because it is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we receive life, not just confession, life and salvation. That good news is the gospel of what we find in verses nine through 11. The gospel of Jesus, who is the beloved son. Friends, Very quickly, this is the most important central message of this passage. It begins with it in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we see it being played out in verses 9 through 11, that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. There's some beauty here. I wish we had time to really really enjoy it. Perhaps you need to just spend time in this passage and enjoy it yourself during the course of this week. But we see the beauty of the Trinity in baptism. We have the Spirit who descends. We have the Father who speaks. As Joel Fair said in our study this past week, the Trinity is glorifying and glorying in each other. We have the beauty of the love that is in the triune God on display for us in the baptism of Jesus. The Trinity is glorifying one another and putting on display the glory of God, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. Most specifically, also the Trinity is preparing the way for Jesus, coming alongside of the ministry of John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus with expressions of love and commissioning. Now, I'm going to read a quotation from R.C. Sproul, and I think it's extremely important for us as we continue in the coming pages. As we work our way through Mark to understand the baptism that we see taking place here and immediately playing out in the coming pages, R.C. Sproul writes The Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. Now, the human nature is really, actually Jesus. I wish I had time to speak on the heresy of adoptionism that Jesus was just a man, some man, born of some man and woman, and then at the baptism, that, that the Spirit of God took over Jesus, essentially possessed him and made him the Messiah. Friends, that's heresy. It's wrong. Jesus is the Messiah at, before the birth for nine months. Even John the Baptist knew that when he encountered him in the womb. Jesus is the Messiah. But in this text, we have the Holy Spirit anointing the human nature of Jesus. We tend to think that Jesus performed his miracles in his divine nature. I mean, Jesus is God. He can do whatever he wants, right? Except for he set aside that glory to go about the ministry that he is in on this earth. We tend to think that Jesus performed his miracles in his divine nature. Actually, he performed them in his human nature through the power of the Holy Spirit given to him at his baptism. He is being anointed for a special work. It was there that God empowered Jesus to fulfill the mission he had been given. And we see that reality play out and immediately he's driven out into the wilderness in dependence upon the Holy Spirit who had commissioned him on that day of his baptism to move forward in obedience and dependence upon the Father. What a glorious reality that we have not been given that commission. We have not been given the commission that Jesus Christ has been given to die in the place of sinners. Rather, we receive the benefits of it. But do you know what glory we do have? That we have also been given the Holy Spirit of God who gives us what we need to live a life in dependence upon the Father. Just like our elder brother Jesus Christ did for us. This is a central thread that runs its way through the gospel of Mark. In in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I think it's a bit of a theme verse for the book. It's one of those verses that you could write right at the beginning of the book. 1045, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the purpose of the coming of Jesus, to serve and to give his life. And we call this good news. We have the baptism of Jesus. In other accounts of the baptism of Jesus, John argues that he shouldn't be baptizing Jesus, but that he should be baptized by Jesus. And again, John is proclaiming that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, but to wait upon the Lord with humility and confession. There's nothing that John can do. He's waiting upon Jesus to do something in him. But Jesus responds to John with something very curious. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, he says this. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Fulfill all righteousness? I thought Jesus is righteous. He's about 30 years old when this is happening. How is he not already fulfilling all righteousness? What righteousness does Jesus who is God himself, walking in perfect obedience to the Father, need from a baptism of repentance. Does Jesus really need to repent? Does he really need to be cleansed of sins? And the answer is a clear and resounding no. Jesus is the only one who is righteous, but essential in all of his ministry. And again, this may be something you know, but it's not something we say nearly enough. Essential to the ministry of Jesus is that he takes our place in the whole of his life, death, and resurrection. He's being baptized, not for repentance for his own sin. Jesus is doing what you and I ought to have done. Jesus' ministry is substitutionary at every single point. His life itself, with its every obedience, is for me. This is why we did the series just prior to Mark in January called Hidden with Christ, Hidden with Christ in God, Uh, a series on union with Christ. If I am in Christ, His baptism is for me. He expresses when He sings the Psalms, and you know Jesus sang the Psalms with His family, with His brothers and sisters, with His community. And at the temple, he sang the psalms. And because he sang the psalms, my worship becomes acceptable. His pilgrimages to the temple three times a year for all of his 33 years of life by faith were my pilgrimages. Jesus brings me to God that I might be restored to fellowship. The whole of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is substitutionary. It is for me. Jesus' dedication and obedience to the word, even as we'll see next week in the temptation, is my obedience. That I might be counted not only cleansed. Here's what Jesus does. Not only cleansed, which is what John the Baptist was talking about, but that I might be declared righteous, having fulfilled obedience to the Father in Christ. If we are in Christ What this passage also means is the Father's approval is for us. If I am in Christ, when the Father says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. That approval, if I am in Christ, is for me. That's important. His approval is not of us. Oh, he knows me. He knows what I'm like, and he knows that so much of what I am like is not approvable. His approval is not of us, but in Christ it is for us. Friends, in this passage and throughout the book of Mark, we will see four things. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Spirit Baptizer. And Jesus is the Beloved. Son of the Father. The whole ministry of John the Baptist is that we would be humbled to see and receive the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of salvation by Christ alone. Here at the beginning of our study of the Gospel of Mark, may we abandon every ritualistic, self righteous hope of salvation. May we come in repentance, may we come in confession but in the hope that only the ministry of Jesus Christ can save. And may we go out to the wilderness where nothing else but faith might bring us to see Jesus. Heavenly Father, our prayer is that we would see Jesus. That we would see the one that you love to reveal. The one who has spoken to us by his word, recorded for us, the one that the Spirit has preserved a word for us. The very fact that I hold a Bible in my hands that is accurate and true is evidence that the Spirit loves the Son and loves to make sure that we would come to love the Son too. May you use your word in us, in this season in Mark, to give us faith to believe and the salvation that is in the work of Christ alone. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in the good name of Jesus Christ. Amen.